0: This is going to be the last week of the sermon series that we're doing on the seven feasts of the Lord, okay? This morning, what I want to do is I want to do part two of the Day of Atonement, feast number six. And then I'm going to share a little bit briefly at the end about the Feast of Tabernacles, feast number seven. Okay, but let's start. I'm going to give you this whole sermon in one sentence. You ready? And you might want to write these things down. God is faithful even when we are not. God is faithful even when we are not. And the title of the message this weekend is Faithful to the End. Okay. Now I'm going to say a lot and I'm going to go really fast and so I'm just going to tell you you can you can turn to scriptures in your Bible if you want, but I'm going to go going so fast you're probably going to have a hard time getting there. So what I've done as an act of courtesy to you is I've provided just about every scripture that I'm using up on the screen, okay? That way we can just go and blow. Is that good? Yes. Okay. Well, last week I showed you how the Day of Atonement tells us a lot about the first coming of Jesus even though it's a fall feast. It tells us a lot about the first coming of Jesus because it's a prophetic picture of the person and work of Jesus as our great high priest. You can go back and watch and listen. If you're like, I already lost, it's okay. Go back, watch, listen. You will be able to get the gist of it. But I also mentioned that the day of atonement is is about how God will turn his attention back to Israel during what is known as the seven year tribulation. Okay. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Now, listen, this is a vast topic. There are layers and layers of details to this. Okay. Uh, Multiple angles, various opinions. There's no way that we could cover all of this and, and even try to make sense of all of it, but listen, it is important. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to share what I feel like is most relevant to understand. Okay. So let's start with something that is most likely familiar. The tribulation. The tribulation. The tribulation is the final seven years of history before Jesus comes back with his bride to set up his kingdom on the earth. It's called the tribulation because it's going to be a terrible seven years. Okay. Especially the second half. According to Daniel 9 and Matthew 24, this seven years will be a very uh, specific, it'll have a specific recognizable beginning, midpoint, and end. Now, a lot of people think that the rapture of the church is what begins or what starts the seven-year tribulation, but that's not right. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, in Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 7, it says, and he, talking about the man of lawlessness or Uh, the Antichrist, he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. One week is understood to mean seven years. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years in, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple will come the abomination that causes desolation until the decreed destruction is poured out upon him. And I know that's a lot of words. It may be like, what in the world is going on? Maybe confusing. What this is saying is that the Antichrist will make some sort of covenant with Israel for seven years. Okay. A lot of pastors, a lot of Bible scholars believe that this will be some sort of a, a peace treaty because of the way the Apostle Paul says that while the people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly. I personally believe that... Um, this covenant is going to have something to do with the rebuilding of the Jewish temple because it says, and he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Well, for, their, for him to put an end to sacrifice and offerings means that the sacrifices and offerings have to start back up, right? If you know anything about it, you have to have a temple to do that. I suppose you don't. You could have a tent in the desert, but they are itching to build that third temple in Israel, aren't they? Yes. Whatever the covenant with Israel is, it's what starts the clock for the final seven years, not the rapture of the church. Again, there are differing, differing views on this, but what's totally undisputable is that at the halfway point, at the three and a half year mark, smack in the middle of the tribulation, this man the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will go into this rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and do something despicable, okay? Remember, he says, in the middle of the week, Daniel 9, in the middle of the week, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of the temple will come the abomination that causes desolation. Matthew 24, Jesus says the same thing. So when you see... Standing in the holy place, the abomination of desolation described by the prophet Daniel. Aren't you glad that our Savior knows the word? (laughs) He's quoting Daniel. Jesus Jesus went to Sunday school. (laughs) When you see this, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Again, the Antichrist does something very obvious very evil. He does something blasphemous. The apostle Paul in, in 2 Thessalonians 2, he talks about the day of the Lord. And he says, the day of the Lord is not going to come until there, a rebellion occurs or a great apostasy. And the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, talking about the antichrist is revealed. He will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So he will seat himself in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay, standing in the temple of God, proclaiming yourself to be God, definitely qualifies as an abomination, right? Yes. And Paul says that this event, this event will reveal this man of peace to be the man of of lawlessness, and this will be the time marker for the day of the Lord. Jesus said the same thing. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination of desolation described by the prophet Daniel, then those who are in Judah need to flee to the mountain. Okay. Why do those in Judea need to flee to the mountains? First, let me say that we don't know exactly what the first three and a half years of the seven year tribulation is going to look like. I mean, the Bible gives us some insight. The apostle Paul says in second Thessalonians two, that in that time, before all this goes down, there's going to be a, a great falling away, a great apostasy, this means that, that those who claim to love God, know God will walk away from God in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus himself says that there's going to be wars, there's going to be rumors of wars. Nations will rise against nations, kingdom against kingdoms, famines, there'll be earthquakes. He says all this is going to be the beginning of birth pains, okay? In fact, maybe the covenant, maybe that peace treaty that Daniel's talking about in Daniel chapter 9 is, is some sort of solution to some of the craziness going on around the world. Maybe. We, we don't know for sure. What we do know, listen, what we do know is what is going to take place in that last Three and a half years of the tribulation. Israel gets blasted by the Antichrist. Jesus says, "When you see standing in the holy place the abomination of desolation described by the prophet Daniel, let those who are in Judah flee to the mountains. It goes on and says, let no one on the housetop come down to retrieve anything from his house. Let no one in the field return for his cloak. In other words, get out of Dodge. It's about to get crazy. And who's he talking to? He's talking to Jews, right? Those who are in Judea. He goes on and he says, how miserable those days will be for pregnant and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not occur in the winter or on the Sabbath another reason we know he's talking to Jewish people, right? The Sabbath. For at that time, there will be great tribulation unmatched from the beginning of the world until now and never to be seen again. So Jesus calls this last three and a half years, the great tribulation. And he says, it's going to be really, really bad for the Jewish people. In fact, it's going to be the worst time ever. In Jeremiah chapter 30, and we don't have time to read the whole chapter. It's actually a a pretty long chapter. But I'm going to give you some highlights because this tells us a lot about this situation. Okay? In Jeremiah 30, it says, starting in verse 1, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will cause them to return to the land that I give to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Let me pause and just say that a lot of people misinterpret this as having already happened, like in the Babylonian captivity. Because Israel was held captive by Babylon. But then after 70 years, they were released, and God brought them back into the land. But this isn't the time that Jeremiah is prophesying about. In fact, Jeremiah, the whole, the whole chapter of Jeremiah chapter 30, it ends with this. In the latter days, in the latter days, you will consider it. In other words, this is my end times plan for you. Okay, let's keep reading in Jeremiah 30. For thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with a child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turning pale? Okay, that's a crazy picture, right? Is there anything worse Than a man giving labor. I submit to you there is not. (laughs) No, that's a crazy picture, right? And yet God uses that analogy, that picture to describe how bad it's going to be for the Jewish people in that time. He goes on and he says, alas. It's like saying, dude. For that day is great. So there is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. He says, for that day is great. There's none like it. That day, that day that he's talking about is the three and a half years that Jesus calls the great tribulation. Here, Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. Remember, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. That's right. He says, alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. Now listen, you know, you think about the Babylonian captivity, okay? That's what we read in the, in the book of Daniel, if you've ever heard that. All the young men were brought in and tried to ser- serve the king and all that stuff. It was, it was crazy. That was bad. Think about all the stories we got out of the book of Daniel. Daniel's thrown into the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fire. They had to bow down at the sound of the music. It was, it was wild. It was woolly, right? But then you think about you think about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D, just, just years after Jesus ascended and went back to heaven. That was crazy, too. That was really bad. That was, that was probably worse than, than Babylon. But what do we know? Less than a hundred years ago, we're all aware, we've all seen the pictures of what happened in the Holocaust. That was worse. the other two combined. So God tells Jeremiah that a day is coming for the Jewish people and it will be worse than anything they've ever experienced. He says that day is great. There is none like it. Zephaniah 1, uh, Revelation 6 you can read about it a little bit in Revelation 16. All of these talk about that great day. This time of calamity at the end. Jesus says for at that time There will be great tribulation unmatched from the beginning of the world until now and never to be seen again. Okay, obviously this is going to be a tough time in history for the whole world, right? Every nation is going to suffer. But especially Jacob. Especially Israel. They will suffer most. Okay, but why? Why is Jacob in trouble? (laughs) Why is Jacob in trouble? Let's talk about that. I'm going to give you two reasons. One, Satan can't stand Israel's position. Two, God won't stand for Israel's rebellion. Y'all hearing me? Let's cover those. One, Satan can't stand Israel's possession. On your own time, you could read Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's starting in verse nine. I'll just read nine and 10. It says, for the Lord's portion The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in the desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. Listen, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Listen, the Jewish people were chosen by God to be a light to the nations. They will forever be at the center of God's plan of redemption. Well, Satan doesn't like that, does he? No, he doesn't want that. He hates that. And he thinks that if he can somehow destroy Israel, that he can thwart God's master plan, which includes sending him to the lake of fire, right? So the enemy is very motivated. He's going to target the Jewish people. Revelation 12 says, um, now when the dragon, which is Satan, saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman. The woman is Israel. He persecuted the woman, Israel, who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, to her place where she is nourished. Look at this. For a time and times and a half a time from the presence of the certain. Listen, time is one year. Times is plural. So that's two years and then half a time. What does that equal? How many years? Three and a half years. We are some mathematical people. I don't have time to dissect this whole chapter or even this one little section that we're in. But a quick translation. At the three and a half year mark of the tribulation, once the Antichrist reveals himself for who he truly is and he desecrates the temple, he starts to wreak havoc on the world starting with the Jewish people, okay? That's one reason Jacob is in trouble because Satan can't stand Israel's position. But another reason is because God won't stand for Israel's rebellion. Let's talk about that. Let's start with Hebrews 12 because it says, for whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. Translation, God always deals with disobedience. You with me? Do we need to recalibrate? Okay, I'm back. Listen to me. God always deals with disobedience. And sometimes... That disobedience requires a spanking. I'm going to pause right here. And I, I, I know that this is going to be a little bit of a sensitive topic, but I'm your pastor and I want, to help you, I want to help you parents out. I want you to listen to me. Parents who don't spank are depriving their kids of one of the most important biblical principles that there is. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Listen to me. Parents who won't discipline their children properly with appropriate pain. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying you get a two by four and start going a wagon. But I'm saying appropriate pain. Let me, let me tell you what, let me tell you what they're doing. They're teaching their kids that disobedience only has mild consequences, but they're also preparing their kids to be upset with God and to question him when he does discipline their disobedience, because he will. God disciplines the ones he loves. He scourges every son whom he receives. I want to tell you those two things again. This needs to stick because I love you and I know you love your kids and you want them to serve the Lord all the days of their life. You know, scripture says that train up a child in the way he should go. And he will always, however it says it, he will always come back. He'll be good to go. Right. You know why that is true? Because of other biblical principles concerning your children. You got to hear this. Parents who don't Discipline their kids properly with appropriate pain at the appropriate times. They're teaching their kids that disobedience only has mild consequences. And they're preparing their kids to be upset with God. And to question him when he does discipline their disobedience. Because he will. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And scourges every son whom he receives. Think about it parents. We've been misquoting a scripture for years. Spare the rod. That's not what it says. That's not what the scripture says. Proverbs thirteen twenty four says, he who withholds his rod hates his son. Spare the rod, hate the child. Some translations say It goes on and says, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. It's the principle. Okay, just something to think about. Okay? We're talking about how God won't stand for Israel's rebellion. In Jeremiah 30, in verse 11 through 15, this is what he says. Yet I will discipline you justly. I will by, by no means leave you unpunished. For this is what the Lord says. Your injury is incurable. Your wound is grievous. There is no one to plead your case. No remedy for your sores. No recovery for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They no longer seek you. For I have struck you as an enemy would with the discipline of someone cruel. Because of your great iniquity and your numerous sins. Why do you cry out over your wound? Your pain has no cure. Because of your great iniquity and your numerous sins, I have done these things to you. Now remember, he's talking about what will happen in the days, in the months, in the few short years before all is said and done, right? We've established that. In the latter days, you will consider it. The last three and a half years on this earth will be the time of Jacob's trouble. But there's good news. You guys in for some good news? Or you're like, please. <laughs> listen to the good news. And, and I, I don't have time to read all of this. But most of Jeremiah is about what God, listen, what God will do after Jacob's time of trouble. You, you got to get this. I don't, again, I don't have time to read it all. You do. You can go home and read of all, all of Jeremiah 30. Listen to what he says in 10 and 11. Therefore, do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest and be quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. Look at 11. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you, though I make a full end of all the nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make an end. I will not make a complete end of you. Let me pause and give another parental side note. This is so important. Listen, this is where parents that do spank, that do enforce some sort of discipline with appropriate pain, miss it, they miss it, failing to follow up with the assurance that things aren't over between us. When I was uh, a younger father, I spanked my kids a lot, okay, in fact, let me show you something, I have two little things here. When I would spank my kids, I'm going to to tell you how I did it, it, because you parents might need to know this, some of you that still have younger children, okay? I spank my kids a lot. And the first thing I'd do is I would take my my handy-dandy spanking spoon. This spoon actually was a gift from one of our youth students years ago. She went on a trip to Tanzania, and I guess she was over there and thought, the herrings could really use that spoon to stir their soup or something, I don't know what. She brought it up and gave it to me, and I was like, I know what I'm using that for. This is my. This is going to be a spanking spoon, right? It's funny because uh, we haven't used this in quite a while. But um, I asked my wife to bring it last night. And and it's got all this stuff on it. You see the tape on it? I promise you that's not for me to get a better grip on it. <laughs> I don't know what the tape's on there. And then I noticed all these little stickers on it. There's like Mickey Mouse stickers. I don't know if this is some sort of subliminal message from my kids. Please don't spank me. Oh, oh Mickey Mouse, you know. I'm like, huh? That ain't gonna work. And then I look over here, and on this on this side it says, "Mom loves Ek," which stands for Emma Kate, my daughter. Mom loves Ek. It's like this is somehow supposed to persuade. <laughs> don't spank me! Oh no! Right. So this, we we use this, and then at some point we found this uh, parenting class or something. I don't remember. And they talked about um, using something other than your hand. That way they're not like ah whenever you go to pet them or whatever. So that's not good. If your kids are going like that, it might you, you don't, you're probably using your hand. You don't need to. You need to use something else to associate that discipline with. You understand? Not your hand. Amen? Amen. Anyway, they, they talked about a, a leather strap that you can use. And so they had one. I thought, well, that's a good idea. Maybe, maybe I don't know. Maybe that's more godly or something. So we ordered one. And the straps have um, um, the Lord disciplines those he loves written on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we ordered one, but they only had them in Spanish. For real. So it says, El Señor disciplina a los que ama. Did I do that right? Was that right? So we ordered one of these, and it's in Spanish. <laughs> so this is, uh, this is El Señor. Son, go get El Señor. No, Daddy, no. <laughs> anyway... I would take—we didn't use this. I didn't like it; just didn't do what I needed it to do. It was just kind of floppy. <laughs> like really, Elsie and yours got problems. Anyway, so I, I stuck with my Tanzanian uh, weapon. So, but listen, I would take my handy dandy spanking spoon, and I wanted them to see this. Here's what's coming. But you know what I'd do next? I would get down on my knees, and I would get on their level, and I would look them in the eyes. And I would say, son, this is why I'm spanking you. And I would talk about it. I, I, I asked you not to do this. You did it. I was gracious. I gave you another chance. But son, you kept doing this. Notice I keep saying son. <laughs> it was always my son's. <laughs> but you're disobeying daddy, and I'm going to spank you. Because I love you. And then you go through all the motions of trudging through the begging. You guys know what I'm talking about, parents? no. I'm going to spank you! No, no, no! Don't me! And then they'll be like, "Hug me! Wait, can I, can I give you a hug?" It's like, "Yes, let me hug you!" And then I'm going to beat your butt. You know what I'm saying? But they would all kind of hug you. All my kids did that. I don't know what is going to Can I hug you? It's like, "Yes!" And then bend over. And they were all, they were all floppy fishy. You know what I'm saying? So you had to go hire a couple guys to hold your kids down while you give them a spanking. <laughs> it was crazy. But listen, <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you this too. So when we first started um, spanking our kids when they were little, we would we didn't know. And I'm going to help you out, parents, because you don't know either. You know, first of all, counting doesn't work. You're giving them three seconds to disobey. That doesn't make any sense. One, you have two more seconds to disobey. It's like uh, a thing that we say in our house is obey right away. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because that split second no could be the difference of them running out in the road and getting hit by a Mack truck or not. They need to hear no and respond immediately. It could save their life. It's a biblical theme. Amen. So one of the things we, we did, it was weird when they were kids, early, early on, is we would say, son, you're getting a SWAT for that, whatever it was. But sometimes we be like, son, you are getting two SWATs. For that. And sometimes it might be, you know what? I'm giving you three swats for that. Now get over here. I'm going to give you three swats. And it got to where I, uh, I would say, come, son, come over here. We're going to spank you. And they'd be like, how many swats? Yeah. I'm like, what? <laughs> what does it matter? Well, I, last time I only got, and they started negotiating with you. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? But we all know, listen, all sin is equal. There's no hierarchy of sin. Displeasing the Lord is displeasing the Lord. Disobeying mom and dad is disobeying the mom and dad. Isn't that true? True or false? I'm trying to be real. So here's what we did. You know what? A spanking is two SWATs. A spanking is two SWATs. Son, you're getting a spanking. And he knows. Negotiations are over. <laughs> you're getting two SWATs. Y'all with me? But here's what's important: listen. After we spanked our kids. We would take them, we would hold them, we would hug them, we would tell them that we love them, and as best as we could, we would minister to their little hearts. You with me? And it's a lot of work. You parents know this, especially if you still got young ones. It's a lot of work, especially when you're tired, you're exasperated, you've had a long day, and all you want to do is yell. You're teaching them to yell, by the way, when they aren't able to cope. But Listen, it's worth it. It's worth the time. It's worth the effort. Listen, because I'm teaching them two things. One, I'm not making a complete end of you, son. And neither will the Lord make a complete end of you. Do you understand? Are you with me? Jeremiah 30 verse 17 says, for I will restore health to you and I will heal you of your wounds, says the Lord. Because they call you an outcast saying, this is Zion. No one seeks her. Listen, whenever I'm disciplining my kids, if I don't end with restoration, then I leave my kid with humiliation. I'll say one more thing about this. Parents, please hear me. Our post-spanking protocol produces more fruit than the spanking itself. You with me? Okay, let's shift gears here because this has become an attitude of the world as it relates to Israel as it relates to the Jewish people. This is Zion. No one seeks her. Now listen, it's no secret that the Jewish people are among the the most despised and persecuted ethnic group of people ever. And we know who leads that charge, right? That's Satan. (laughs) Satan is leading that charge. But listen, sadly there are a lot of Christians who believe that God did make a complete end To Israel. That the Jews had their chance. The Jews rejected their Messiah. God's done with Israel. All of God's promises have been taken away from them. and, And have become yes and amen for us. The church. Christians. But listen, that's a very dangerous way to think. And I want to explain that. You know, in the book of Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15 a little bit in chapter 17, God makes a bunch of precious promises to Abraham. And he tells Abraham, these will come to pass. Like you can count on these. I am making an everlasting covenant with you. Now, let me ask you a simple question. Not a trick question. Roughly how long would an everlasting covenant last? Forever. It doesn't end. But there are people who believe that it has. This is called replacement theology. Replacement theology says that the church has become the new Israel. That because of Israel's disobedience, because of their sin, God took these promises away from them and gave them to the church. Like if you see a promise made to Israel in scripture, take Israel, replace the word Israel with the church. Listen, six out of 10 churches believe this. But isn't it true that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? I mean, isn't that our our beloved 323? Romans 323, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Why would God take promises away from one group of sinful people and, and give those promises to a whole nother group of sinful people? That makes no sense, does it? No, it doesn't. But this is what people started to believe. Even as early as biblical times, the apostle Paul's talking about this really in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And I don't have time, obviously, to read three chapters of Romans. Um, But in Romans 11, let me give you a few highlights, a few of his main points, okay? In verse 1, he says, I ask you then, did God reject Israel? And he answers himself, certainly not. Your translation may say, by no means. In verse 11, he says, I ask then, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Again, he, asks, he answers his own question, certainly not, by no means. He goes on, he says, however, because of their trespass, because of their sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. But if their trespasses means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the nations, how much greater riches will their fulfillment bring or their fullness bring? The apostle Paul, he knows a little bit about Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 17, right? That God will turn his attention to the Jewish people again, that he will restore health to Israel and heal them of their wounds. Say this with me, God will, God will restore Israel. One more time together. God will restore Israel. He goes on in verse 15, he says, If their rejection, and remember I'm going somewhere with this, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the whole world, what will their acceptance be? But life from the dead. Did Jesus, nope, that's not what I meant to say. Did Israel, did the Jewish people reject Jesus? Yes. You guys, we're all familiar with Palm Sunday, right? Palm Sunday, uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Remember, everybody's waving the palms around, right? You guys remember that? In Luke 19, it says, Jesus approached Jerusalem the day of his triumphal entry. He approached Jerusalem and he saw the city. He's looking out over the city on his way in. And it says that he wept. He wept over the city. And he said. If you had only known in this day. Even you. The things which make for peace. But now. They have been hidden from your eyes. Something happened in that moment. And Jesus had to make an executive decision. I'm hiding this peace from your eyes. It goes on. It says now. Now. You will be handed over to your enemies because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now, believe it or not, Daniel chapter nine, that same little area there, it prophesies a to the day prophecy to the day about that very moment that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. I wish I had time to explain that. It's fascinating. But again, yes, They rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and Jesus was bummed about it. But before it's all over, they will accept Jesus as their Messiah. In Romans 11, down in 25, it says, I I do not want you to be ignorant about this mystery. This mystery, he calls it a mystery, that God will turn his heart to them again. Don't be ignorant about this mystery, brothers, so that you will not be conceited. And that's what was happening. People were becoming arrogant about their newfound faith. About what they have received. Become conceited. God's done with them. We demand now. Don't be conceited. He said a hardening in in, in part. Has come to Israel. A hardening in, in part. A partial hardening. Of their hearts has come to Israel. Until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Before the end. Listen to me. Before the end, at some point in the time of Jacob's trouble, Israel will repent. The blinders will come off the Jewish people. They will recognize Jesus as their Messiah, and they will repent. Zechariah 12, verse 10 talks about this. Then I will pour out on the house of David and the people of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and prayer. They will look upon me, the one whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Israel's going to repent. Amen. Amen. But let me ask you this. When Israel does repent, how's God going to respond? Like what's his response going to be? And I want you to listen to me, guys, because this is important. This is the whole point right here. Remember, Jesus wept over Jerusalem on his way in. Because of their rejection. And this hurt Jesus, as you can imagine. He came to his own, and his own knew him not. It hurt. It hurt him to have to put blinders on their eyes. It hurt to have to um, harden their heart, even partially. It hurt Jesus to do that. The the day after this, the next day, he and his disciples were walking around Jerusalem. And he says something that's super important. This is Matthew 23. and, And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This whole thing still on his mind. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, stones those sent to her. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were unwilling. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you that you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right here in Matthew 23, what we're reading is a punishment and a promise. You got to see this. It's a punishment and a promise. It's a a punishment. He says, look, your house is left to you desolate. That word for desolate means lonely, uninhabited. It means deserted. And it's actually a word like an idiom. It's It's a one word to describe a woman who is neglected by her husband a woman whom the husband withholds himself. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm now going to withhold myself from you. That's that's That would be a big punishment if Jesus withheld himself from us, wouldn't it? We'd feel it immediately. But he follows that up with a promise. He says, you'll see me again. You'll, you'll see me again when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of... Of the Lord, This is what Israel was meant to declare when they recognized their, their Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember on Palm Sunday, everybody's waving their stuff. He's coming in on that donkey. Everybody's waving their branches. Woo-hoo, woo-hoo. What were they saying? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they didn't mean it. And Jesus knew it. In Psalm 118, look, look at this. In Psalm 118, this is an old, old messianic prophecy right here. It says, O oh Lord, save us, we pray. We beseech you, O oh Lord, cause us to prosper. We know this is talking about um, what a Messiah would bring to them, prosper, that they would be saved. And look what, he, look what it says. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, listen, from the house of the Lord, we bless you. What did Jesus say on this topic? Your house is now desolate. It's empty. It's deserted. But look what it goes on to say in verse 27. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Look, bind the festal sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Okay, now we just circled back around to the day of atonement. If you've been tracking with us, this, is, this is probably a, makes a little more sense. Go back and listen. This is a reference to the Day of Atonement, which we, again, we talked about last week. And this is why the Day of Atonement is connected with the restoration of Israel. At some point in the Great Tribulation, in the time of Jacob's trouble, at some point, we don't know exactly when, but at some point, Israel's eyes will be wide open. Israel's partially hardened heart will be fully softened. They will repent. They will say, and they'll mean it, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, let's stop. Everybody take a deep breath. Even though I held back, there's still a lot of material, right? Right? What's the big takeaway? This is simple. If God didn't give up on Israel, he won't give up on you. What was our sermon in the sentence? God is faithful even when we are not. Can I get an Amen. God is faithful even when we are not. Now, listen, be careful. Don't confuse faithful with passive. God is not a passive father. Israel messed up time and time again. In fact, they messed up and God had to deal with them accordingly and appropriately. Listen, Pastor Tony messes up time and time again. And God deals with me accordingly. Everyone here has messed up and will continue to mess up, right? Time and time again. And what we know is that God has dealt with us accordingly, hasn't he? And he will deal with us Accordingly, appropriately, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he scourges every son whom he receives. But he doesn't make a complete end of us. Does he? Nope. Doesn't sound like that's in his character. In fact, King David said it best. We're we're all familiar with Psalm 23 that wonderful chapter of scripture where it talks about how God shepherds his people, how he leads them. The Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters, right? Does that sound familiar? Here's how it ends that chapter. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. goodness and mercy, all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And this is what feast number seven is about. Dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. The feast of tabernacles. That word for tabernacle in Hebrew means Dwelling with God. It means a dwelling place. Those who have recognized Jesus as Messiah, those who have repented of their sins, who have called upon the name of Jesus, right, for salvation, those who have said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Listen, Jesus comes back into our desolate house. You guys remember the days when we were just empty. Y'all remember those days? We were we were, we were empty, we were desolate, deserted, discouraged. Remember that? We were we were without hope? The days before Jesus BC. Y'all remember those days? Once we say Jesus is Lord, we believe in our heart that He's The son of God raised from the dead. We confess him. Listen, he comes back into our heart, this desolate house. And he fills us with his Holy Spirit. This is what he's going to do Israel, to Israel. Their house was left desolate, but Jesus says, I will come and I will restore you. Things will be good again. And those who call upon the name of the Lord, their future is different. Because now they will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about. Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day pate. Seven days they would party. It was like it was the end of the year. Listen, they were celebrating their forgiveness of sin for a whole other year. Remember we talked about that last week. They had to do it over and over and over. Forgiveness from past sins and go into the new year, sins forgiven. This was a celebration, a seven-week celebration of that. During the Feast of Tabernacles, Also known as Sukkot. They'd build little huts. Little sukkahs. They called them a sukkah. You can see that right I actually went back in time and took that picture. It's legit. You can see these just little temporary dwelling places. And they would live in these for a week. And it was meant to remind them of their temporary time out in the wilderness. After the exodus. And how God faithfully brought them into the land that he had promised them. Now, we're not Jewish. We don't have to do all this. You don't have to go home and build something. But what do we know? It's the same thing for us. This time on earth, living in this wilderness world, is this a wilderness world or not? (laughs) The show is. All the cares, all of our worries, all of our pursuits, everything about this life is temporal. Right? That's right. Except the word of God and our connection to it. That's eternal. Can I get a witness? Psalm 119 verse 89 and 90 says, Your word, O Lord, is everlasting. I love this. It is firmly fixed. Firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. I want you to just kind of bow your head, close your eyes. Let's just take a minute. I believe God's speaking in this place. Let's give the Holy Spirit just a moment to, to minister to our hearts. And listen, you may be here and you've never connected yourself to God's word. You, you've, you haven't recognized Jesus as Messiah. However you want to say it, you haven't repented of your sins. You haven't called upon the name of Jesus for salvation. You haven't said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You just haven't done that yet. You've been in church. You've been around the block. You got some religious equity in your life. But you've never personally said, I named Jesus and repented of your sins and asked him to make you a new creation. I want to invite you to do that this morning. And if you're here and, and you've never done that and you want to, like this was the day you didn't know it but it is and here you are I want you to just lift your hand I just want you to put your hand in the air nobody's looking around nobody's looking but if you've never done that this this is a day when you can You guys can look up here. The reality is, is that most of us in this room have done that. We're born again Christians. We're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Amen. We're children of of God the Father. Co-heirs with Christ. We're a kingdom of priests, royal priesthood, a holy nation. Amen. But that doesn't mean that we. Don't have times, seasons when we're disconnected from the Lord. Maybe it's a small disconnect, maybe a big disconnect. But any desolation in this house is not fun, is it? What I want us to do this morning is I want us to end by taking communion. You can see a couple of stations here, and there's one in the back. But we're gonna I'm I'm going to have a stand. In fact, you can go ahead and stand, that will be good. We're going to take communion and listen, you know, I know these, these little, these trippy little communion things are kind of funny and hard to work with, but while you're struggling through opening and getting to the wafer and the juice, while you're struggling as best as you can, keep that attitude of worship. Amen. And remember, even though it's just this funny little wafer, it represents the body of Jesus that was broken, beaten, ripped apart. So that our hearts can be healed. Our sickness, our infirmity can be healed. Amen. And that juice, it ain't much. There's a little, you can, you can almost look at it and it's gone. But we know that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to wash away our sins. Amen? So we take that juice and we remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The blood that he shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And, And we worship him. And we reconnect with him. And we thank him for who he is. And what he has done. Amen? But here's something I want you to add to communion this morning. At some point, as you take communion, I want you to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just whisper it. Let it come out loud from your mouth. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. I'm going to pray for you. There's going to be some music that starts. And then um, you can come and take communion. And we're officially dismissed. Okay? So we're dismissed tonight by, um, at our own leisure, taking your time taking communion. If you would, when you, when you're done, if you wouldn't mind going out into the hall to um, talk and hang out with people, that way it can remain quiet for as long as it needs to be this morning. So let me pray. I'll officially dismiss and you guys can take communion. Thank you, Jesus, for your, for your sacrifice Thank you that you went all the way to the cross, obedient even unto death. You died the death we deserved, and this morning we just say we're grateful. And we take this, not just because you told us to do this to remember, not out of some sort of obligation, but out of devotion do we take this bread and this juice to communion with you, to reconnect. And I pray that everyone here, as they partake of this communion, that something would transpire, Lord. Something would happen. And as they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Baruch adonai. That they would connect with you in a way that they never had. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.